Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. My name is Crystal, and I am the host of Stories from Palestine podcast, and also a licensed tour guide by the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism. Together with my colleague Salim, we are organizing three 10-day programs this year to discover Palestine. There is still space in the upcoming program mid-March, and also in June and October. We travel around the West Bank, Jerusalem and Jaffa with small groups, maximum 10 people. We provide historical background, we introduce you to the Palestinian heritage, and we make sure that you get to meet a lot of locals. We stay in family-run hotels, and we also spend two nights with Palestinian families. We do some short hikes, easy hikes, and during the October program, you can also join a day of olive harvesting. If you are interested, then check out our website for more information. I will ask Roberto if he can add a link to the show notes of the podcast, but you can also write it down. It is storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that I'm presenting you the second part of the mini-series dedicated to Jerusalem Quarterly 92. In the first episode, I asked the authors to talk about uh, the contribution, to talk about the articles, and I also asked uh, Palestine, as a guest editor, to talk about uh, the general theme of the issue dedicated to Jerusalem's paths not taken, in other words, to those projects that were prepared, discussed, sometimes partially implemented, but never fully fulfilled. So today with Palestine, Harris Ford, Semigu Katalai, Michel Campos, Yair Wallach, and we're gonna delve into a specific of the various stories. So we're gonna hear about uh, uh, the Jerusalem light rail, again, from the Ottomans 
first plans to the Israeli implementation of uh, this idea. We're going to hear from Eris Ford talking about uh, the special municipal commissioner in Jerusalem. We're going to hear from Yair Wallach about the unbuilt parliament and the British colonial plans for a legislative assembly in Jerusalem, as well from Palestine discussing the 1963 general plan for Jerusalem prepared by the Jordanian. This is also the plan that, uh, in a way, uh, made possible the uh, uh, publication of this issue. Lastly, we're going to hear from Maria Chiara Rioli, who worked with Vincent Lemire, discussing the potentiality of the archives of Jordanian Jerusalem, an untapped source of uh, information for a, a bit of history of a city, which we don't know that much so far. But first of all, I asked Palestine to just uh, sum up uh, the various articles to give us a sense of uh, how they look together, and then I will take it from there and start uh, interviewing the various authors. Palestine, back to you. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the, um, you know, the way all of us engage differently with, with this issue of, of past futures. And um, Yair and, and Harris uh, pointed out um, uh, an important element, of course, of, of their contributions, which is that, um, yeah, these are, these are also, some of these plans are also uh, foreign-imposed plans that were interrupted. Um, but what they point to is that at each moment um, in history, there have always been alternatives. And I think that this is uh, something that we tend to, um, or a lot of people tend to forget as historians. I don't think we do. But um, yeah, people are very much impressed with um, the present and, and this um, forges a particular reading of, of the past and um, I think that this is one of the things that the that these um, different articles show I mean they show how important it is to break free of what we know happened afterwards and and to really um, appreciate these different plans for what they were at that moment what ambitions they represented were they foreign uh, led or were they um, indigenous, um, and um, and in that way to really complete the historical record. I think this is this is one of the things that um, that each of these um, uh, contributions basically uh, manages also to do. Um, and I like the idea of of using the archive as um, as a store for the future, the way Jacques Derrida. Uh, expressed it and I think uh, this comes out very nicely um, also in, in uh, Maria Chiara Rioli's um, contribution and, and this is where there is a certain relevance um, for, for today and, and for thinking about the future also. I want to start asking a question to Yair. This issue is about reclaiming the past and one thing that uh, made me think about what I'm going to ask is very much you know, about the idea of uh, walking around Jerusalem and you get to see the signs of various pasts in plural. But one of which that is often forgotten is uh, the British colonial past. So I was wondering, can you actually talk about uh, a British colonial Jerusalem? Is there such a thing? And is there any visible legacy there are other than few monuments or plaques that are obviously 
part of uh, British Jerusalem. Can we really talk about, uh, you know, this idea of uh, Jerusalem as a British colonial city? Yes, I mean, I think it's a very good question because um, I think Jerusalem is a entirely, you know, a, a British colonial uh, creation to a large degree. I mean, what we see today. But it, it is uh, in ways that are hidden, not obvious. I mean, it's a very, is camouflaged very, very well. I mean, I think you feel like if you think of the monument for the uh, British forces that occupy the city in, uh, um, you know, Upper Lifta or Romema, it's a very understated monument. I mean, you kind of, it's not, uh, it's, 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 it's almost bizarre how understated it is. So you can get a sense that, you know, they've just passed through, they were never here. And and that's also, I mean, you know, every I think most people that know something about or about the history of Palestine Israel would probably know the bombing of the King David Hotel. I never thought about it. Why were the British headquarters located in a hotel? <laughs> well, I mean, what's the logic there? And I think within that. This kind of idea of the British as, you know, they just passed through, they just stayed there as guests, right? This kind of hapless referees, they kind of found themselves in a situation between two sides and they didn't know what to do and they tried to solve it. And then they just kind of retreated. I mean, that's the kind of narratives that we get as kind of stuck in between almost by accident and, and, and that's a very useful narrative in many ways, but uh, kind of uh, hides the fact that they thoroughly, thoroughly shaped first the country, but also the city. I mean, think about you know how what have happened. What if Jerusalem wouldn't have had the stone uh, decree? So you would have a city built of concrete. I don't think you could make the same, advance the same claims about, you know, sanctity, uh, you know, if the whole city was built of concrete and, you know, and, and, and so there's, they, they've given a very, very powerful language to create this illusion of an ancient holy city in what is, you know, a city that most parts of it are much newer than Manhattan. And um, and I think that's the uh, so in terms of town planning, uh, you know, they set the the ground rules, the the vision that is then later on taken by local players for their own agenda, whether it's you know Jordanians or the Israelis, and again different agenda in sixty seven, different agenda today. But what I think unites it is a certain colonial agenda that, that takes it from the hands of the local people and their interests towards some kind of bigger visions that, um, and also create this illusion that this is, this is essential. This is how the city is. There's no way to change it. You know, it's always been this way and so forth. That's a very, very powerful myth that, uh, I think the British has done, have done enormously to, to consolidate.
Harris, I have a question for you. I was fascinated reading your article by, by, the, by the very fact that, and you talked about it, that essentially the United Nations created their own problem in order then to solve it. But I, I have a subtle question. Did they ever believe in the project of creating a special municipal commissioner? In other words, did they ever believe that this could have worked for Jerusalem? I think they wanted to believe. Whether they actually believed or not, I think there was a real desire to believe. Because a lot of what we're discussing and, and what has been brought up in, in this discussion, in this um, special issue as well, is grapplings with modernity and progress as well, especially in the top-down aspects um, through like Ottoman designs for for railways at the at the tail end of the of um the ottoman empire i mean that's that's a grappling with modernity in the same way that the british were looking to reinvent jerusalem through architecture and um and more civil infrastructure as well so the united nations inherited this legacy not only of jerusalem being this this stagnant supposed place um that is maybe not as old as we think um and and the special municipal commissioner was a way to promote that kind of western branded progress and the problematic aspects of progress as well so having having a mayor having that person in place to to govern jerusalem to oversee the supposed inherent um, conflicts that were viewed a lot more religi religiously than politically at times um, was a very convenient way of co compartmentalizing the the issues as well so that so that belief in in the special municipal commissioner may not have been there entirely but that desire for it to be there and that hope because there there, there was a hope throughout all of this as well um even through the imperial ventures there's there's this hope of remaking jerusalem in a way that's more ottoman that's more british that's more jordanian um put putting the stamp on the city that's internationally recognized and making it their their own city um without much local consultation that's another theme that that runs through this a lot is where where is the local um aspect where are the discussions with pal palestinians where are the discussions with peoples living in palestine you you just don't see that very often which is not shocking when you when you look at this as colonial and imperial ventures um yeah just with the with the grapplings of modernity with the grapplings of problematic progress as well um this this desire to believe that the one missing piece or you're just one step away from having this this unified jerusalem of having um in 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 the case of my article a, a united nations governed jerusalem i don't think there's much foresight of what this would look like five ten years down the line let alone 50 years down the line. This was a very immediate project um, that was 
that really came to fruition like two weeks before um, the creation of the state of Israel um, and was abandoned not much after also. So this was a, this was a stopgap. Um, if, if the British only stayed in hotels in, in Palestine, um, the United Nations only stayed in hotels and poorly packed their luggage as well. Um, so um, the hope was there that this would, this would allow for the time to formulate a bit of a better plan, but the fact that this this future was interrupted so abruptly did not allow for that next step of the plan to be constructed. And the United Nations has been dealing with that ever since because this is this was also a chance um, to start the peace process in in uh, in the peace processes in in a much better way. And that was bungled from from the start. And, and we continue to see how the ongoing peace processes um, have, have been stymied, um, not, not solely because of the special municipal commissioner, uh, but this was an opportunity for the United Nations to set a much different tone than the mandate system, than the League of Nations, than this idea of uh, protection. And they chose imperialism instead of empathy. Palestine, talking about... Uh the question of locals. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, how Jordanians envisioned Jerusalem and how Jerusalemites were part of this uh, plan. Yes, thank you, Roberto. Um, the, the municipality of Jerusalem during the Jordanian period um, was made up of um, many Jerusalemites. So, um, it's not a question, it, there's no dichotomy. Um, there's no sort of, let's say, distinct Jordanian vision in that sense. Uh, what there is, is of course, a vision of the Jordanian state. Um, and the Jordanian state um, was particularly concerned with the relative place that Jerusalem would occupy compared to Amman. Um, that was a real issue. And it's, it's really interesting to actually read the development of both cities um, in parallel at certain moments. Um, there's the whole question, for example, of the airport. I mean, Jerusalem uh, had an airport, um, which is where today's Kalania uh, checkpoint is. And um, it was uh, one of the most important airports actually bringing also uh, tourists, not only to the West Bank, but also to Jordan. So it was a really important entry point. Um, and that uh, changed when the, the airport in, uh, in Amman was, was upgraded. So um, there's, there's many different ways in which uh, it would be useful to read the, the history of those two cities um, in parallel. It's, it's also interesting to see how um, some of what I would describe as uh, Jerusalem's modernity before 1948 uh, was displaced from Jerusalem's western neighborhoods that were uh, ethnically cleansed in 1948 uh, to Amman, because this was a place where people who had the sort of educational and professional background uh, as, as many of these um, residents of western Jerusalem had were needed. Uh, the Jordanian state was only just uh, beginning to be constituted and they needed people who had that sort of experience um, in mandate 
administration, uh, which is where where um, many people um, living in, in West Jerusalem had also um, uh, worked as professionals. And um, and you have um, you have institutions, you have uh, schools, you have clubs uh, that move basically from from West Jerusalem to Amman. So uh, that's a, that's a whole um, another way, actually, also of of looking at the relationship between um, these two cities and also between um, the West Bank and 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 Jordan. Michelle, I have a question for you. Obviously, you talk about uh, the uh, light rail from the Ottoman times to, you know, 2011 opening under a sort of Israeli rule of Jerusalem. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, the differences between the two, because obviously we're talking about transportation and both projects were meant to move people around the city. But the context, as you mentioned earlier, uh, are very different. Obviously, when we talk about Ottoman Jerusalem, we're talking about a city which was uh, mixed. And uh, while we do have, obviously, you know, communities gathering around their own ethnicity or religion, but certainly it was an open city. Whereas today, the uh, tram line seems to follow apartheid lines. This is the word that you use, and I, and I, and I see that too. And so I was wondering if you can take us through differences between the Ottoman projects and the Israeli one with a little bit more details, also talking about uh, the politics of the, um, of the project itself. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so you highlighted a really important difference, which is the uh, lines of the tram itself and the ways in which they follow um, political lines, uh, not only of the current moment, but of course, those that were imposed after the 1948 war. Um, and in fact, a large part of the tramway goes through the former no man's land that divided West and East Jerusalem of um, after the 1948 war until the 1967 war. So the main differences are really uh, in terms of the demographics of the city, right? So today the city is um, up to 38% uh, Palestinian, largely concentrated in the old city and East Jerusalem. Um, as opposed to West Jerusalem, uh, which has a largely, you know, almost exclusively Jewish population and some foreigners. Uh, and the tram lines very much reflect this urban segregation that is a result of the 1948 war and um, as well as um, policies to keep the city divided uh, between the two populations. And, um, you know, this is also something that, you know, it didn't begin in 1948, we see this urban segregation beginning already in the Ottoman period. Um, in the British period, we have the uh, first division of transportation lines. So you have exclusively Jewish bus lines that are now sprouting up to service the Jewish population of the city uh, and a split between where people live and how they get to where they live. And I think that, you know, goes hand in hand with their vision of who, for whom is the city uh, and how they identify with the city. So that would be the second uh, big difference today in Jerusalem is that the municipality obviously um, represents the Jewish population of Jerusalem and it represents it in the vision of uh, Jerusalem as the unified uh, capital of Israel, full stop. Um, so Palestinian uh, residents of East Jerusalem do not have, obviously they don't have citizenship, uh, they only have residency rights and even those have been under attack over the last um, decade. Um, 
as with many Palestinians, losing those residency rights for absences from the city. Uh, and they don't have representation on the Jerusalem Municipal Council. Um, so they don't have any say in the expenditures of the municipality, um, certainly not in terms of the um, social services or urban transportation um, services or stops that are built. Uh, as I mentioned before, only one of the proposed, uh, the 10 proposed tramlines in the future would service East Jerusalem. So the current tramline does have three stops that um, are adjacent to Palestinian neighborhoods, but they really are along the way to the uh, Israeli settlements um, in the north of the city, as opposed to having been planned to help Palestinians get to and from their city, you know, their, their use of the city. Um, so between kind of the segregation and the politicized um, lack of representation for Palestinians in the city uh, that the tramline really does reinforce, uh, it's also, I think, going back to this question of uh, whose city is this? What is Jerusalem? For whom is Jerusalem? You know, who, who belongs here and who gets to benefit from it? Um, and, you know, the the tender who has the concession for the tram line has made a big, uh, you know, a lot of to do about the fact that, well, Palestinians are up to 24%, I think, of, of the daily passengers. They're using the tramway. It obviously serves them as well. Um, but what we see is that, of course, Palestinians have very mixed feelings about it. And their use of it is a reflection of the division of the city and their relative lack of access to public transportation um, Palestinian bus lines service East Jerusalem, but they don't often you know, cross into other parts of the city that Palestinians might need to go to. Um, and so I think there's a lot of this public relations um, that the tender of the tram line, that the Jerusalem municipality, that the Israeli state tried to use uh, to show that, uh, you know, this is an open, globalized city for this population, when in fact, you know, as other contemporary scholars have shown, this really does uh, reinforce and serve to legitimize the uh, Israeli occupation and uh, of, of East Jerusalem and to reinforce its claims to a unified city. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I have a couple more questions very quick for everyone, and it, it's basically the same. So uh, starting with Yair and then again, Harris, uh, Palestine, and Michelle, I wanted to ask you, whether or not there is a legacy of the unfulfilled project that you discussed in your articles, and if so, what is this legacy? I mean, one legacy, one you know, obvious legacy is the fact that the, uh, the large plot of land, which is adjacent to Talbia and Rahavia, that was state land. It was bought with a lot of money. Um, <clears throat> and and that served for a, a, quite a number of public institutions, which are very important ones. So I mentioned the President Mansion, but also the Van Leer Academy, which is a, you know, it's a Van Leer Institute, which uh, is a kind of leading progressive um, higher education think tank and so forth. Uh, and the Academy of Science, and I think also the uh, uh, Israeli Institute for Democracy, and the uh, Jerusalem uh, Theater. So these are quite important institutions. Most of them are very uh, committed to a Israeli version, which is a you know a very Jewish exclusive one. Uh, but they are built on on that their presence there is a result of of uh, of something that was supposed to serve the inhabitants of of all country or all, all the countries um, and I think that's 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 an, something that you know if we are aware of it um, then it's. You know, it's something that at least people in these institutions ha- should be aware of it as well and potentially opens discussions. Um, I would say also that I think that, um, and what I hope is that the images of these models would circulate because uh, they're important. They're important to say that this is not some... Uh, 
you know, that thing, this is something that could have happened. In the same way that, you know, you see people using stamps or banknotes of the mandate and so as kind of visual symbols. And I think that's a potentially also useful visual symbol. That this is the idea of Palestine as a unitary state with all its kind of the problems with it is something that was really there. But that's, I don't know if this, the, the pictures will play that role or, or not. But for me, it was quite a shock to see them in the first place. And I should say that some architectural historians have written on this, David Kroyanka, Adina Hoffman, uh, and, and Ron Fuchs, who wrote uh, his PhD dissertation, and he wrote quite a lot about this building, but this never filtered to public discussion. Yeah, with, with with legacies of the special municipal commissioner and the general internationalization process as well, um, continuing into today, I'd say is the exceptionalized nature of Jerusalem as well. So the city that already had plenty of religious importance and was elevated up as well. But when you're trying to cookie cutter and elevate um, a city for government purposes that's going to take on a certain mythology as well and and this and this mythos of a, a more political Jerusalem needing one neutral observer for it to be for it to be peaceful um and and that that needed to come from the United Nations as well and I think this comes back a little bit as well to what uh, Dr. Campos was mentioning too of who who belongs in Jerusalem. And, and and this was a moment of real questioning of who belongs in Jerusalem too, because the appointed leader against against his will, like the the title of like I did not want the job, Harold Evans did not really want this job, um, went to somebody from the United States. Um so this this, this was not this was not a Palestinian, this was not um a, a Zionist or Israeli, so somebody from the United States, um, and and just what what the optics of that is, as well, um, of who belongs in the city, who can govern this city, and and we've seen through continued Israeli movement of um, government buildings and offices into Jerusalem, and the attempts to make Jerusalem the capital of the Israeli state as well. Um, the United Nations made Jerusalem um, and helped solidify Jerusalem as a city um, exempt from the rest of Palestine as well. And, and that has continued to um, really work against a lot of the peace processes um, and has continued to alter the urban landscape as well of, of Jerusalem, not only um, tactically on the ground, but also really importantly in imaginations as well. Well, um, to talk about the legacy of an urban plan for a divided city is a, is a sort of heavy task, I find. Um, because of course, I mean, the plan had to, um, had to deal with what what actually existed 
meaning an extremely truncated, um, disadvantaged city in terms of infrastructures, in terms of space, in terms of um, capacity to to expand in, in any sort of um, um, meaningful way also. So um, I think what Jawad and I found particularly important was the idea for these residential neighborhoods. Um, they almost feel like they're out of touch with the reality that existed at, in East Jerusalem at the time and that still exists and even more so today. Because it really sets out an almost utopian idea of self-contained neighborhoods um, sort of built around like a, a common uh, area with playgrounds for children, with, um, you know, streets thought in such a way that they would be safe to cross for children on their way to school. I mean, um, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's almost a utopian uh, sort of scheme that I, that we very much, uh, uh, held on to in in our in our discussions, we, we were very much uh, in, inspired by this idea how how um, you know starting from a from a place that was extremely crowded, they they were still able to envision something that uh, is yeah that was really well thought out in in some ways. I am struggling to find any positive legacy from the tramway story. Um, if we think about another contemporary transportation project on the horizon in Jerusalem, which is the cable car that would go over the Palestinian village neighborhood of Silwan uh, to facilitate access to the Jewish quarter into the old city for Israeli Jews. Um, you know, it's a similar sort of, you know, the continuation of expropriation of Palestinian land and ignoring Palestinian presence or um, any say in the city and, and literally zooming past them or flying over them in the city to try to conceptually, if not practically, erase them from the city. Um, that said, I mean, I think there, there definitely are NGOs on the ground in Jerusalem that have been uh, working against this erasure, either from the perspective of, you know, trying to um, underscore the city as a shared city. So if we think about Yeramim or Amik Chavet, um, and the efforts that they make to, you know, to give tours to foreigners and to Israeli Jews to understand the city and to understand um, the struggles of the Palestinian population. So that's one effort. You also, of course, have, um, you know, tremendous efforts among Palestinians in Jerusalem to develop their own parts of the city, whether the old city or, the, or to develop East Jerusalem um, against heavy odds, right? With not a lot of financial support, but um, the kinds of historic preservation and rebuilding and institution building uh, that like the Welfare Association is trying to do or that other Palestinian organizations are trying to do um, for Palestinian Jerusalem, um, you know, would be, would be obviously... Um, an improvement on the city, but I, I find that it is hard to think about. Um, there are just so many missed roads that were, you know, from the Ottoman city uh, and this Ottoman tramway proposal. Not that it was perfect by any means, not that it was uh, a utopia by any means, um, 
but we're just so far from that that it's it's hard to find this um any room for for optimism i have one last question and i really want to ask all of you briefly if you can tell us if there's anything that we didn't talk about but you want to highlight in relation to your paper yeah here if you want to go first i think for me what what was interesting and this is partly you know i wrote co-wrote this with my stud student uh, Julio Cirujano and his whole project is about the ambiguous state that is created in Palestine you have state building but not quite it's not clear what kind of state is being built and i think that kind of ambiguity and confusion that the british have throughout uh is what's interesting about this project and in a way kind of explains why it wasn't built because you know when it's unclear to them what are they doing exactly um you know they they missed the opportunities to do this it, but at the same time to think about historical contingencies because as i said it was very very close to being built so you know almost they went forward and that so a lot of times when we think about roads not taken, it's something about accidents, something about structure, and how do we kind of, as historians, think about the interplay between the two? These are kind of interesting questions. Yeah, um, not not too, too sure. One thing I would like to highlight a little bit more is just how discombobulated this whole effort was by the United Nations. Um, in May of June of 1948, there's just a flurry of telegrams being sent back and forth and amongst different people. Um, and there was appointments of different people in certain um, similar positions as well. Like we see Count Folk Bernadotte being, um, being, um, given his position as well around this time um and everything revolving around palestine for the united nations was done very haphazardly um and very much on the fly nobody seemed to know what was actually going on um and pe the people who were making decisions were at un headquarters in in new york state whereas everybody doing um doing the action was in um was in Jerusalem or in Palestine. Um, so we see this th this gap across the ocean that's extremely um, evident in, in the archival records um, and extremely evident as well of how the United Nations viewed uh, Jerusalem as well. It, it was a city that it could impose whatever it wanted onto it. It didn't, it didn't warrant full attention um it was and, and this whole thing was was imperial as well it's it's easy to look at the early united nations and maybe give it a little bit of a pass as well if it was trying to figure things out it was trying to work out um whatever issues of the transition from the league to united nations but at its heart were these imperial imperial nations these imperial countries um, that were trying to continue the mandate system with a little less British influence, but still with the full imperial influence as well. Um, and you can see the 
the, the back and forth aspect is not so much about how can this be better for for Palestinians for for local people, but how can we um, appease appease ourselves? How can we mitigate these colonial um, imperial rivalries as well in the city? Um, so this the the whole thing was a mess from from the outset, and it's and it's no wonder that it that it failed. Um, not only. Um, not only from the UN perspective, but also the the pure lack of consultation of of anybody in Palestine um, doomed this project from the outset. Yes, I, one thing that struck us also in in reading um, this nineteen sixty three comprehensive plan is that um, the authors insist very much that they were trying to do urban planning in very unnatural circumstances. They were always referring to the division of the city and the state that this had led um, the, the, the eastern part of the city into. And um, there's also a mention of urgent problems that uh, you know, the, the municipal council would, would, would ask um, uh, solutions for uh, in, in the course of the consultations that were going on around this, this urban plan. So we get a real sense of, of the um, very difficult um, daily life, uh, also for a, for a municipal council uh, functioning in in Eastern Jerusalem at that at that time. And when we uh, compare this to the introduction of the 1966 plan that was formulated by Henry Candle, who who was the the urban planner. Um, in charge of, of this dossier for the Jordanian government and who had been in charge of this dossier uh, for the mandate before that. Uh, this sort of um, contextualization sort of falls flat, which is, which is really interesting. It's a, it's a very, the introduction is very, reads very sterile and we don't see any of those unnatural circumstances, no reference at all to the division of the city and and what that entailed. Um, and so I'm curious. I, I didn't have a chance to look at. I didn't actually get my hands on the entire document um, written by by Candle. But I think that that might be a, a nice uh, future. Yeah, future work of research to just compare um, how this was sort of cleaned up and and turned into a much more a normalized sort of document of, of urban planning compared to the original comprehensive plan, which gives us a real sense of the difficulties that, that existed on the ground. Yeah, I just want to go back to this question of the archives. And um, you all have talked about the wonderful sources and tropes that you found um, traces of these um, interrupted futures or these uh, moments of a Jerusalem that could have been different. And and yet, I think for, at least for me, working on the tramway, yes, there are traces of this proposal and this project, but I'm also struck so much more by the silences and by the absences. Um, you know, I, I did find in uh, Al-Quds newspaper, they discussed the project or the proposal a couple of times, um, but there's, it was very difficult to get a sense of to what extent people who were not trying to get the concession uh, to build the tramway 
knew about it, what they thought about it. Um, and so what I tried to do was to think about, you know, how it might have service different parts of the city and people living in those parts of the city in terms of urban mobility, but it's really hard to get a sense of um, to what extent it uh, it really would have mattered to other residents in the city and to, so I, I guess I'm just, um, you know, again, as I'm teaching now the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, in the classroom, and I am struck yet again by how imbalanced the sources that are available, uh, the surviving sources are in general. And then, of course, for the classroom in the United States, how much fewer of, uh, of English language sources there are to share with students. And so I'm really thrilled that you all have found those traces of, of, um, of those archival traces and have brought you know, these stories to a broader audience, because at least here in the United States, you know, it's it's still an upward battle in terms of trying to uh, re-educate people as to the history of the region and the complexities of the region and the city, of course. Thank you all for contributing to this amazing issue. And I just want to remember Palestine Naili as the guest editor of Jerusalem Quarterly issue 92, and all of the authors, uh, Harris Ford, Semigo Catalai, Michel Campos, Yer Wallach, Julio Moreno Siruano, Ilan Pape, Jawad Dukan, Palestine Naili, Vincent Lemire, and Maria Chiara Rioli. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Roberto. Yes, thank you. This concludes this mini-series dedicated to Jerusalem Quarterly issue number 92, Jerusalem's Interactive Futures, guest edited by Palestine Naili, with articles by Eris Ford, Semigo Catalai, Michel Campos, Yair Wallach, Julio Moreno Siruano, Ilan Pape, Jawad Dukagan, Palestine Naili, Vincent Lemire, and Maria Chiara Rioli. Please take some time to browse the Jerusalem Quarterly website at palestine-studies.org. You can find the link then to Jerusalem Quarterly, all of the past issues. Remember, the Jerusalem Quarterly is free and you can download all of the articles from day one to nowadays. And stay tuned for future episodes dedicated to issues of the Jerusalem Quarterly. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. 
Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.